Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Today's cool fact of the day is, the ancient Egyptians were pioneers of the urine-based pregnancy test. After potentially pregnant women urinated on wheat and barley seeds over a period of several days, if the barley grew, it meant that a boy was coming. If the wheat grew, it meant that a girl was coming. If neither of them grew, then it meant that the woman wasn't pregnant. The theory was actually tested in the 1960s, and it showed that 70% of the time, urine from pregnant women actually did produce growth, and the urine from women who were not pregnant did not promote growth. Also, urine from men didn't work. I'm pretty sure we need a larger sample size on this one, and we finally found a use for grain. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Welcome to Bulletproof Radio. Today, we've got a couple interesting people on the show. We've got Hunter Motz and Katie O'Brien, who are authors of this book, The Straight A Conspiracy. This is a pretty neat book. I, I read through it. It's really detailed about what you can do to get better grades. 
Hunter's an interesting guy. He's a Harvard graduate with a degree in biochemistry who became an author instead of a biochemist. And he's really working on bridging the gap between what people believe about their brains and what science tells us about our brains, which is totally in line with all the bulletproof stuff that I keep talking about. Mm -hmm. He's co-author of Straight A Conspiracy, A Student's Guide to Ending the Stress of High School and Totally Ruling the World. And the book is actually about that, and it's written in a great voice uh, for high school. I wish I'd had that book when I was in high school. And he did it with his business partner, Katie O'Brien, who you see there on the right if you're watching this uh, on YouTube versus just listening in your car. Katie's also a graduate of Harvard. She lives in New Hampshire, or lived in New Hampshire, and she's an actor and a teacher. So the combination of someone who's studying biochemistry and how the brain works and a teacher coming together to write a book created a pretty powerful book. Now, there's some other interesting stuff I learned about you guys, and I have to tell our listeners about it. <laughs> so you actually lived in the same basement where the Nobel laureate Dr. Watson of Watson and Crick used to live? Yeah, I lived in uh, the basement of his house for a year, um, had brunch with him many times, uh, got to see him eat bagels. I, I, that's just, so I, that must have rubbed off on you then. <laughs> his bagel eating strategy or no i mean it was it was a real i mean it, it's it was a once in a lifetime experience i mean you know this is a guy who ushered yeah. in the age of genetics and that, you know, he was there at the very beginning that's incredible uh and from there i guess or maybe before that you attended eton college with princess william and harry or princess yeah. prince i call them princess harry like i've, I've just angered all of my european followers <laughs> princess <laughs> william and harry <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm, yeah, I was there with them. I uh, didn't really know them very well, um, you know. But, I, you know, it, it's, uh, it was certainly an interesting experience, you know what I mean? Because we, I was there when Diana had died, like right after that period. Oh, wow. So, you know what I mean? I think it was very interesting as well to see just how people dealt with that. You know, some people really wanted to be a part of his life and all that sort of stuff. I mean, personally, I just wanted to give him space. Yeah. That that sounds like a very human thing to do. Uh, yeah. I can't imagine the pressure that would have been on them. Yeah. Now, we can match that with the fact that you're the only male cheerleader in the history of Harvard to have been benched for excessive enthusiasm. <laughs> this is true, too? Yeah, that is actually true. Um, <laughs> uh, the coach of the cheerleading team, uh, Coach Amy, she was from Appalachian State University, and she had very clear codes of conduct, what was acceptable behavior for a cheerleader when you were representing the school and all that sort of stuff. And apparently that didn't include swearing at the referee. Um, <laughs> so, I love it. Yeah, I, I got pulled from the game for being a super fan. <laughs> Katie, how do you put up with this? You know, every day is different. So. <laughs> the answer it's is a good partnership. That's right. Lots of coffee. Lots of coffee. <laughs> I love that answer. Now, <laughs> now before you got, uh, before we get into what's going on in the book and like how to increase grades, uh, okay, you were also named as one of People Magazine's hot bachelors, and you're worth over a hundred million dollars. So <laughs> all the dirt, the, like like the the pressure on you for dating must be intense. Like how do you how do you cope with that? Well, uh, well, <laughs> I'm going to give you an exclusive here on the bulletproof. I'm not worth. And many, many millions of dollars. Uh, when I first moved out here, my roommate uh, was at a talent agency. And she was like, you should, like, do some of that stuff. Like, you should, like, go and act and audition and all that stuff. And so she convinced me to get an agent. And I was like, I don't understand what I'm doing here. But he said, 
And this was right at the sort of the dawn of reality TV. And he said, you went to Harvard, right? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, so you're really rich, right? And I was like, no. <laughs> and he was like, but you could play rich, right? And I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so he basically sent me into audition for this reality show called Survival of the Richest. And so I went there with a pink polo, popped my collar, had like a pink sweater around my neck. <laughs> And just said the most obnoxious things possible. And they were like, we love you. We love you. And it was never clear whether the producers knew that I wasn't worth a lot of money. Because they would keep on asking me, so how much are you worth? How much are you worth? And it finally got down to the episode before the show. And they're like, listen, we don't care. We just need a number. Can we say you're worth $20 million? And I'm like, yeah, you could say I'm worth $20 million. <laughs> that is an awesome story. I, I love it. I actually deal with that. When I was 26... I made $6 million. And I talk about that. It was a, it was a huge thing because I didn't come from a wealthy family. And when I was like 28, the company went bankrupt and I was legally not allowed to sell my stock. So literally, I like made $6 million and lost like $5.8 million in the course of two and a half years. And it was enormously stressful, but people still hear, oh, Dave's like this gazillionaire. I'm like, no, seriously, listen to me. Like, I work for a living, you know, like I, I drive a five-year-old car, you know. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I've, uh, I understand what it's like when people sort of like, oh, you're made of money. You know, what, why is your car not made of, of diamonds? You know, like, whatever. So. All right. And uh, you've been on Brian Callen's podcast as well, right? Yeah, Brian brought me in. Uh, we did the second episode of Brian Callen's show, and then he brought me on for episode 25 to talk about campaign finance. And then about 15 episodes ago, uh, he brought me on to start booking guests and co-hosting the show. So I've been doing that for about 15 episodes now. Nice. Oh, I didn't realize you were co-hosting it. So I, yeah. I was on Brian Callen. I don't know what episode number. And uh, next time I head down to LA, I'm going to look him up again. And so maybe I'll run into you there. But, uh, Absolutely. That's Absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about your book, because I think there are a lot of people listening who have kids uh, who mm -hmm. would like to get better grades. And I think some of this stuff actually applies to college as well. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. The history of these kinds of books, you know, there's where there's a will, there's an A, which has been around like, God, for a long time. It's kind of a perennial <laughs> thing out there. And uh, who's the guy who, who does all those? I'm forgetting his name. Oh, this is terrible. Cal Newport. No, there, there's uh, actually a filmmaker who who does, you know, like a lot of those disruptive things like the, the you know, the guy, he's like super overweight and he talks about uh, politics. All the Tea Party guys oh, hate him. Michael Moore. Michael Moore. Thank you. God, I could not remember his name all of a sudden. He's like the most famous guy ever, right? No, Michael? what does this say about no, Michael? you're the most famous guy ever. <laughs> <laughs> and what does that say about Matt, Michael Moore that as soon as you say fat filmmaker? Like, oh, okay. <laughs> and, okay. and even worse, I'm recording this and I'm a formerly obese guy who weighed 300 pounds, right? So like, like you know, I, I have no idea how much damage I've done to my own psyche as well as my reputation. Right. There. <laughs> Sorry, Michael, if you're listening, man, you know, love your work. <laughs> but uh, he wrote a book very, very early in his career that was like how to cheat in college. And it was literally like, here are the strategies for cheating that I measured from all of these people at Rutgers. And it was like one of those things where right, you read the book and you're like, oh my God, people are so slimy in college. So that was like the evolution of where there's a will, there's an A to here's what, you know, the college students with no ethics do. And and it was yeah. <laughs> it was a neat continuum. So fortunately in your book, you're not talking about cheating. You're just talking about getting more done with less time That's and right. yeah. less effort. Which is as bulletproof as it gets. That's why you guys are on the show. Like, I think this is awesome. And a lot of what you're talking about, like neuroplasticity, applies to everyone, not just you know people in high school. 
Mm-hmm. So what's the deal about believing that your brain is neuroplastic and that, you know, if, if you can walk and talk, you can do quantum physics? Like, how do you draw that line? How do you conclude that? Well, so the, 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 you know, the really big work, I mean, we brought together in the back of the book, we have, you know, basically seven big fields that are set to change the way that we understand the brain, right? And they're coming from psychology and biochemistry and, you know, neuroscience and all that stuff. But some of the big findings are, firstly, you know, 50 years ago, we thought that the brain was pretty static. You know, we would hear things like, oh, you get no new neurons after 21, you know, all of that sort of stuff. That's not true. The brain is incredibly plastic. It's constantly able to reshape itself based on what you do. Um, and in fact, I think that there's a really, really great book by Norman Doidge called The Brain That Changes Itself. Yes, I have it. Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, I think that the most telling story that he tells in there is, you know, basically in the old days when somebody had a stroke, you would tell them, sorry, you're never going to use the left side of your body again. Nowadays, there's, you know, very specific physical therapy that they do, and they're able to regain most of that brain function. And that's because they're recruiting new areas of the brain to be able to do those things. Um, so that's, that's the thing, is the brain can really, really change. The thing is, though, is, is that some people are very much stuck in that old way of thinking. They think that the brain can't change, and that affects the actions that they take. Some people think that the brain can change and, you know, have believed that for a long time. And so they're constantly looking for that improvement and constantly getting better. And the biggest work there is by a woman named Carol Dweck, who's at Stanford. And she basically studies people with two different mindsets. There are students who believe that they have what's called fixed intelligence, where I didn't get the math gene. I'm not a natural writer or anything like that. And so essentially they never really, they don't, they don't seek help from their teachers. They don't deal with their mistakes they don't persist as long, they avoid being challenged, right? They essentially take all the actions that assure that their uh, intelligence won't grow. And then there are people who have what's called a growth mindset, where they believe that their intelligence can always grow and change, and that with the right kind of practice, they can always get better. And they seek help, they deal with mistakes, they approach their teachers and all that sort of stuff. And really what this all comes down to, what the whole book is about, is basically we say that being born smart is the worst idea ever. And it is. Because that's the idea that gets in the way of you practicing and really applying yourself. In fact, you know, I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old, and I don't tell them they're smart. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm certain they are. What I tell them is, nice job, good, yeah. good job working, nice work. Because cultivating the idea that if you work at it, you can do it versus, oh, you know, you're so smart, you better not try it because then you might fail. Then everyone will know you're not smart. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. It, I, I wish more parents picked up on that. I, you know, everywhere they, they go, I, all kids hear this from most adults. Oh, you're so smart. You're so smart. Because mm-hmm. they're trying to like do the self-esteem thing. And it seems like it's a total bomb. You guys it's, would agree with that. Right. Well, it, it, it is. And there's also, I mean, it's, it's not most people's fault. The people that have a fixed mindset, they have that because so far, you know, the science that's out there has been out there for a while, but it's been sort of leaking out slowly but surely to a sort of New Yorkery audience. I mean, the Malcolm Gladwell readership, yeah. and and really, you know, in our popular mainstream culture, there is no discussion of this. And all we know is, you know, we start at an early age. We hear stories of Mozart being born and composing masterpieces at the age of five, and you know, you picture Thomas Edison or Albert Einstein having these just like ideas, like light bulbs that come out of thin air. And you know, we start from that, and then we think. Well, it makes sense. People just get genius. It just shows up at some point in their lives or we don't. And so if I've been waiting around for three decades and nothing has shown up yet, I guess that's not my lot. And 
And, you know, kids do that same thing when they get to classrooms, it translates down. And so if you sit there and the kid next to you is little miss, you know, raise her hand for every single question at lightning speed, you don't, which, yeah, well, fair. Um, <laughs> which was me. Um, you know, if, if that happens, then you, you know, you assume that she just gets it and you just don't, when in reality, you have no idea what kind of practice is happening behind the scenes. You know, a lot of that learning work is invisible work. So one of the claims uh, that I make that's true on my website is that I've raised my IQ by more than 20 points. Mm-hmm. And people oftentimes say that's not true. And then they say, well, how many IQ points do you really have? And I say, a gentleman doesn't tell. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about his mind bigger than yours. Like, like that's just not where we want to go here. It's, yeah. is it bigger than it was before? Right. Uh, and... Do you believe in IQ as a predictor of academic success? And do you believe IQ is plastic for kids? Like, what's the deal there? Well, firstly, the IQ is definitely plastic. In fact, globally, over the last hundred years, every the average IQ score has gone up. That's yeah. what's called the Flynn effect, right? Um, and specifically, it's gone up in the area of abstract reasoning. And that's really because we spend all day doing very abstract things. We deal with the internet, which is, you know, the, the least tangible thing, the hardest thing in the world to imagine holding uh, that you can think of. But we are so comfortable and so native with it that that increases our abstract reason because we practice in that way. I'm pretty uh-huh. sure that the IQ went down in that small uh, farming town where I grew up. Like, it didn't rise. Well. <laughs> yeah, that's probably because you That's why the average IQ is <laughs> But a gentleman doesn't tell. <laughs> No, uh, it, it's it's a really good research to talk about that. Like everyone today is smarter than they were before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the other interesting thing too is, you know, what is the history of the IQ score, right? Why was the IQ score invented? It was actually invented by this French guy named Alfred Binet. And the intent was to basically be able to figure out where are students right now? What areas are they strong in? And what areas do they need targeted specific support with? What happened was is that the IQ score was then hijacked by basically the eugenics movement and hijacked by people like um, Terman, uh, who really strongly believed that people were born with a set level of intelligence and that, you know, whatever your birth intelligence was, that determined your success and all that sort of stuff. Um, and as a side note, Terman had this study that he did with his, this group of kids <laughs> where he selected these kids purely based on IQ scores. He's like, listen. I'm going to predict the most successful kids in this group just by giving them IQ tests. And then you'll see, you just wait 20, 30 years and they'll be amazing. Well, it turns out that the people that he picked out turned out to be fairly average and he missed two Supreme Court justices. Um, so, you know, the point is, is that the, the IQ score was moved from being a measure of where you are to a measure of what you will be. That is evil. And I did not know that. Uh, because if it's a how are you doing now signal, it's totally mm-hmm. not controlling. And uh, certainly, I've in my own life, it's functioned as a how are you doing now. And as I mm-hmm. learn how to get out of my own way, as I learn how to optimize my metabolic function and mm-hmm. you know, to fuel myself properly, it's amazing my ability to think and do abstract reasoning and, and other normal brain operations. It goes up, not down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But for most people, it's, you know, it serves as a cap on what's even possible. What's the day-to-day typical variance 
in, in your experience of IQ, if you've come across that in your research, like, you know, I, I had six beers last night today, I'm kind of feeling like a zombie, you know, am I five <laughs> points lower than I was eight, but tomorrow I might not, is it two points? Do you have any, any numbers there that you could share? Anecdotally, I can tell you. <laughs> 70 points. <laughs> but I, I actually, that's a very interesting question. I don't know if there's any research that's been done on like day-to-day -day IQ scores and how different, you know, uh, metabolic conditions affect that. Um, that would actually be really interesting yeah. research. I, I've seen different numbers, you know, the day-to-day -day variances. Some, one report, don't ask me to remember which one it was, was uh, up to 10 points or 10%. Uh, yeah. on a day-to-day -day variance, uh, not necessarily from one day to the next, but that it could vary that much based mm -hmm. on really environmental conditions, tiredness, and things like that. Mm -hmm. Others say it's much smaller, but we know that if you take an IQ test, you know, how well rested were you? Um, did you have a cup of coffee before you did it? Even yeah. coffee can change that performance. So we know the plasticity is there because we have smart drugs. <laughs> yeah, and, and on, a, on a more extreme level, of course, you know, we know what happens when we're afraid, right? Yeah. When we're afraid, our IQ drops to about zero, right? You can't think, it's all fight or flight, right? So mm -hmm. emotional states, you know, all a psychology, right? What you've eaten, have you slept, all of that stuff. You know, the response times, for example, of people who are incredibly fatigued or texting or, you know, cognitive load switching. I mean, there's, there's huge, huge, huge variability from those perspectives. Now, you talked about fear and a lot of high school students, heck, a lot of adults, aren't really well programmed to know when they're in a state of fear. Mm -hmm. You have these, we call it anxiety, or you know, we have these, these things that are happening in our body. You sit down to take a test, and all of a sudden, this background signal that you're not aware of gets in the way mm -hmm. and says, oh my God, you're going to fail. If you're going to fail, no one's going to love you. Like, you'll be a failure. You'll, you'll end up in juvenile hall, and you know, like, you'll be a bad person, and all those like, inner messages that, that constantly play. And that's what gets people for you know, acting problems on stage. They get you know, stage fright. Uh, certainly, my test performance, I used to have problems with that. Like my, first, my first answer would be great. My second answer would be 70%. My third answer would be like 10%. And my fourth answer was like, I can't even read the stuff on the page. Yeah. And I was entirely unaware of like, what was happening mm -hmm. to cause that. And it was it just internal stuff that was invisible to my conscious brain. Mm -hmm. What do you recommend people do to, to deal with that? Just to know that it's an issue. I mean, emotions are really the huge part of the learning process that nobody talks about. You yeah. know, people talk about strategies and they talk about, you know, ways of gleaning material and taking notes and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, if you are not emotionally in the right place at the start of a class, then it's no surprise that you can leave an entire lecture and have gotten nothing from it. And this is sort of the most primal part of the entire learning process, you know, but because it's not a thing, people, especially students, tend to think emotions just kind of happen to you, mm -hmm. you know. I'm sitting here and I just, I got afraid, I couldn't do anything about it, or I got angry, I couldn't, you know, whatever it is. And in reality, we all have moments all the time in our everyday lives where we take charge and readjust our emotional state. So, you know, the examples we use are if you're driving down the highway and somebody's weaving in and out of traffic in front of you and you're honking and you think like, everybody, right? And then you pull up beside him and it's a man frantic because his wife is in labor in the next yeah. seat, you know, then you're like, oh, oh my gosh, I'm so, you know, and you instantly shut off the anger because you've reassessed and you realize that that emotion is not right for the situation. And we do that, you know, for upset if somebody bumps into us and then it's our friend or, you know, whatever it might be during the day. You can absolutely do that in class. 
but it takes recognizing that it's irrational for you to be afraid of a math test that's in mm -hmm. front of you. That test cannot eat you. That test is not going to set you on fire. You know, at the end of the day, it's just paper. It's just math problems, probably ones that you've done before. But, you know, so once students get into a place, and really adults, everybody, get into a place where you realize, okay, here's what's happening. I'm allowing my brain to shut down exactly what I need to take this test. This is not a life or death situation. Let me just put that away. That There is an ability. You sort of get better and better, just like with anything else that you practice. You can get better and better at turning those emotions off and putting yourself into a place where you're open to learn. With my executive performance coaching clients, I use this seven-day intensive neurofeedback course called 40 Years of Zen that mm -hmm. has been shown to raise your IQ by 12 points. And the way it does that is by really hardcore teaching you to stop getting in your own way because it's like a lie detector that tells you every time you have a fear response or some other response that's not mm -hmm. there, like you get an immediate feedback and you have to correct it because if you don't correct it, then you fail and you're, you know, <laughs> your little fear of anxiety doesn't like that either. So it, it's, yeah, it's a neat hack, right? Yeah. But for people who aren't, you know, going to, to be in a position to go do something like that, I use this $99 sensor on the iPhone. Uh, it's called uh, the inner balance sensor, or I have HRV sense, which is an app that works with a chest strap. And you can train someone, even a student, heck, my four-year-old can go 15 minutes where you mm -hmm. learn to change the spacing between your heartbeats, which turns mm -hmm. off the fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to look at what happens when you do something like that uh, before mm -hmm. a test because you just short circuit that thing. But yeah. what made me think of this, though, is your story about driving. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm a certified coach in this method, and I've done it for years. And like I can turn on calm and peace like as a skill. And what happens if I'm monitoring myself while I drive? Like someone cuts in front of you and like the light turns red instead of green. And, and I'm like, you know, the light on the little device that signals that I just went into fight or flight or kill mode in this case. Right. More right. fight <laughs> than flight. Right. And I'm like, oh man, like I'm a failure. Uh, so then I, okay, I'll turn light green. And it took two weeks of driving like in Silicon Valley traffic before okay. I could just let someone cut in front of me and, and like stay in a not fight or flight response. So I, I turned off that thing, but that like, hey, you know, I'm going to kill you, buddy. Uh, <laughs> that sort of thing is just so wired into your nervous system. And it's all like subconscious and it's all faster than you can think about it. Because like you already were like, I'll kill you. And then you're like, oh, mm -hmm. maybe I don't want to do it. But the, the speed mismatch. Right. Yeah. Right. What do students, adults or teenagers like, what do they do if they're not, like, biohacking themselves like that? Like, are there techniques that you recommend in the book, like, to chill out before you go on stage, before you give a talk, before you do a test? Like, what are the recommendations there? Super, super easy thing is self-talk, right? And we do this all, and we do this in a lot of areas, right? We expect students, for example, to manage their anger, right? So the point is, is that if you're angry, right, it's not acceptable to start throwing chairs, right? What you, Unless you happen to be a member of, you know, Pink Floyd or... <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> spinal tap. But if you, you know, so what you do is you talk to yourself. You're like, it's okay. You know, they probably didn't understand what was going on with me. You know, we all have misunderstandings regardless. I'm not going to help myself by throwing the chair. Right? Or, even, or even if you can't get to that zen of a statement, just if I throw this chair, I will be suspended. <laughs> right. That's not good for me. You know, whatever it takes. Yeah. But, but it's, it's really, it's just shifting your perspective is so much of it. You know what I mean? That's like the most powerful technique. And essentially what Katie's saying about awareness is, is that, you know, we're aware that we have to do that with our anger. We're not aware that, you know, part of, you know, being in school is that you have to manage your fear. 
you have to manage, you know, that you feel stupid, right? Frustration. I mean, that sort of shame. thing, yeah. you know? I mean, and that's, and one, that's one of the most, most, most important one for your listeners um, is the feeling of stupid because stupid is really a feeling. And specifically, it's the feeling of shame. Yes. And, you know, shame causes you to avoid the source of your shame. And so what you do is, is that, you know, you hide your mistakes and you hide the tests that went poorly. You scrumple it up. You put it in the bottom of your backpack. And of course, you know, as we all know, the key to getting better is dealing with your mistakes, is analyzing them, seeing what went wrong. So, for example, the feeling of stupid is really one of those things that sabotages students for years and sabotages people for a lot for life, you know. That's that's something that has no place in your in your personal worldview is the idea of stupid, because that will really sabotage your progress. Well, shame also drives procrastination, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So no, what are the what do typical students do? Will they procrastinate? I didn't do my homework. I had something better to do. And, you know, I was afraid of taking a test. So I didn't take the advanced placement course. I took the mm-hmm. easy course. So mm-hmm. literally that. That's, we'll, we'll call it almost invisible fear that, that unless you really look deep inside what your wiring is doing to you, you don't know this. So That's then right. you end up going through life accepting second best or third best or just hoping to be normal versus like, you know, charge through life and kick ass all the time. And That's who it. cares if you fail? Like, you're fine. I've done all sorts of things that normal people would be ashamed of. Like, I'm yeah. mostly recovered from them. <laughs> no, it's so true. And, it, you know, that happens because people are accustomed to equating their results with who they are as a person, as opposed to just what went wrong. I mean, we're really trying to create a shift between, you know, saying that your results are a reflection of your ability, who, you know, this is, I'm a B student. I'm always going to be a B student. Maybe I get an A once in a while, but that's not really me. Versus just the actions that you took. And it's, mm. you know, it is absolutely true that it's a really deep-seated thing that's very hard to recognize for a lot of students. But exactly that that action of hiding the tests away, the first step to breaking it is to take back out any test, anything that didn't go the way that you want, and just really looking at what went wrong here. And it's been amazing. So often we have students who say to us very declaratively, I am not a math person or I didn't get an ear for languages as in this is never happening for me. So that's final. And, you know, we take back a quiz and we just look through it and we say, okay, well, here we go. So seven problems went wrong of these seven. What is the issue that actually went wrong? And often on about three of them, maybe it's a calculus test on three of them, you just multiplied incorrectly or you didn't carry an, I mean, like really basic mistakes that were, you know, stupid mistakes like you could have fixed. And then on the other three, it's usually some basic thing that if you just shift one one aspect of the problem, not even that you don't understand calculus, but that you didn't understand how to multiply fractions mm-hmm. or whatever it is, something small. But once they've gone through that process once and then twice and then three times, it becomes really clear, oh, these are not issues in my brain. These are things I could have fixed. I was just too freaked out mm-hmm. to well, even fix them. Don't you hear a lot, though? It's because you didn't try hard enough to pay attention but then, I mean, how, how do you how do you respond to language and thinking like that yeah uh, try try hard like brian <laughs> brian callen actually has a great one on this you know he said you know when i was in school everybody always told me that i need to focus and i was like what do you mean focus do you yeah. mean sprint <laughs> <laughs> um but you know i mean that's the thing like try hard is not specific like, what feedback. Does that even mean? Yeah. you know what i mean yeah and and, and also it equates the idea that you know that Working successfully is about being stressed out. Yeah, it right? does. 
Yeah. And I mean, that's so much of the, the myth that we see. And, you know, we recently um, were up in Portland doing a, a segment and, you know, we did this talk for these people and there was this this teenage girl there and she was really, really like into the idea of how many hours she worked. Oh, you know, that she was a thing later, for a lot of high you know, so often we meet, you know, these kids and they measure their success by like, I was up until two in the morning. Yeah. I, was I have so- three gray hairs yeah, and I'm 16. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, that's not how I it has to so be. so many five-hour energies. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, da, yeah. Da, 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 da. But I mean, you know, and that's... The, and they go to school and that's how they compare with each other, you wow. know, it's working the like, hardest. Like, how, how much that's, did I beat myself down to achieve exactly. my goals? Yeah. Exactly. But also of those 24 hours that you spent on that paper, how many of them were you actually working on the paper? Mm-hmm. Generally not very many. Yeah. <laughs> I think Yoda said it pretty well. You know, there is no try, do. Uh, mm-hmm. That it was Bruce Lee. I can't remember. It might have been some amalgamation of the two in my brain. But uh, it it comes yeah. down to I really work hard on not saying try to my kids and mm-hmm. like try to do that. That presupposes failure. Mm-hmm. And same thing. Strive. No, don't strive. Like striving is bad because then you have to like work really hard. And fundamental laziness is a good thing because it inspires innovation. Like mm-hmm. maybe I could have written that paper in an hour instead of in ten hours, and I could have used the rest of the time. And I. I used to do the weirdest things in, in college. One of the best papers I ever wrote on like environmentalism as a religious movement or something, I had like five cups of coffee at 2 a.m. And it was a long paper and I was done by 8 a.m. I have no idea what I wrote. I was just like in some bizarre <laughs> zone and I handed it in and like I got, you know, A plus and like, you know, all sorts of kudos. And when I read the paper, I'm like, holy crap, this is really good. But it was like a 20 yeah. hour paper in five hours and I was so stoked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. To me, that was a win because I did it in only five hours. So shaving efficiency, and when you view the world as an efficiency metric and your time and energy are your most precious assets, as a student, that should like change your whole perception, right? Absolutely. And okay. so it's and that's and everything that you're talking about and everything that you do with the with the podcast and the website and you know with the coffee is what we're talking <laughs> about, which is you know really like instead of just throwing time at the problem, you know, be intelligent about how are you practicing? Is there a smarter way to practice? Are there more fundamental issues that you're not considering? What do you really believe about your intelligence? I mean, if you really believe you didn't get the math gene, is it any wonder that you just sort of like don't really do anything with the math, you know, because you never think it's going to pay off, you know? Well, that's the thing is the kids, the kids who, and the, the adults, everybody who believes that they really didn't get the gene for something or that there's no hope for them in a certain subject, if they, if they give up on it and they're not really studying for the test, that's not, you know, most, most people equate that with laziness. You know, you say you need to try harder, you need to try harder. Actually, that's just being rational. I mean, if that's not going to pay off for you, then it's not a good use of your time mm-hmm. and you should allocate your time towards something that might pay off. But that comes from a misunderstanding that there is no hope in that particular area when in reality just digging in and, and giving some focus work would make a huge difference. That's a that's a pretty interesting point. Do you guys I, I'm not remembering from when I read through the book, do you talk about limited willpower in here? No, although we're both huge fans okay. of the book Willpower, yeah. which is really, really great. But absolutely, you know what I mean, willpower is a resource that has to be marshaled and all of that sort of stuff. And essentially you know, we had to be very discerning about because we're writing for a teenage audience yeah. because these are the people who really, really need it. I mean, so much of the work up front in writing the book was deciding, OK, how many scientific concepts are we going to put in here and how many scientific concepts are the readers going to see? 
right? Because, and we talk Mm -hmm. a lot about like, you know, of course it makes sense. Why would you bother? Like all of that sort of stuff, but we don't specifically talk about like the willpower research or anything like that. It's something that you're right. It may be more adult appropriate. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I, I do know some high school age people who probably would benefit from it because you're using so much of your willpower to try and get your grades or in your career to try and do whatever you're trying to do. And if you realize that every time you use your willpower, like it, it's a finite amount for the day before you yeah. run out, that changes your whole way of thinking. So all of a sudden you're much more into, well, how can I get that done in the least amount of trying, the least mm-hmm. amount of that? And for me, making that change has, has provided just huge exponential benefits in, right. in productivity uh, because there's some sort of, it, it may be just like a Western thing or, or some sort of like weird masochism. And you described it in students just right. Like, you know, look how much I suffered for my grade. Exactly. And I'm like, I don't really want to suffer for anything um, because yeah. I'm <laughs> kind of lazy that way in a good way. Like the kind of yeah. laziness that drives me to like be happy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. So much of it is, yeah, what this is all about is, is that, you know, rather than pushing your way through the obstacle, like make the obstacle disappear. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whether that obstacle is, you know, a limiting belief about your intelligence or whether that obstacle is an emotion that you're fighting against or whether that obstacle is an inefficient way of working or whatever it is. Like it's much, much better. And that's so, that's so much of what the, the experience that people have in reading the book is they read it, they apply it, they see that it works, they apply a little bit more. And over time, what happens, the whole process becomes very effortless and actually enjoyable so that it doesn't require the, you know, that huge exertion of willpower. It becomes easy and natural to do well. Yeah. And that's the thing is that the more you do it, the faster you get at it, just Mm -hmm. with anything. And, and, you know, when you're starting out, there are people around you all the time who seem to do things with no effort. It takes them one hour to do what takes you six hours. Right. Is this a theme? (laughs) (laughs) We're not going to deny it. But, um, you know, but you don't see how that person got to that point. But it is, it is true. That is the goal, is to do the best work possible, most efficiently. And really what takes up all the extra time for everyone are the emotions, are the beliefs that, you know, you work a little bit and then you spin for, for about 30 minutes about how it's not going well or how you don't know what to say next or whatever is the thing. And that's, you know, all of that time feels like work because it was horrible and stressful. Right. Nothing was actually happening. But when I was younger and maybe angrier, <laughs> no, no, maybe about it. Like I, I, I've done a lot of, of work on upgrading my fight or flight response, but, um, I used to, I went from a really good high school to a really bad high school. Uh, like one of the top ranked ones in the country it was a public school, but a really good one. So my last year's high school, I'm like, Oh my God, this is such a joke. So I would intentionally like finish extra fast and get a lower grade to finish extra fast. So I could slam my pencils down and wrinkle my papers and cause anxiety in all the people around me. So they'd be like, Oh my God, I'm so stupid. So their grades would go down and then my grade would go up because it was on a curve. <laughs> in, in retrospect, that was mean. And I'm sorry, everyone that I did that. I was doing it to just be a jerk, but like and we had read Michael Moore book recently. <laughs> so, <right. you> know. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like, oops, but, uh, <laughs> Um, things like that, like totally do happen. So people are like comparing themselves to others, but I'm sure no one in the class knew that they're like, Oh my God, he must be just be smarter than me. And like, Oh my goodness, you know, let, let's try and beat him up later on the playground, whatever. Yeah. But, uh, th- I think those things happen in high school. And so if you're sitting there, even in college and sort of comparing yourself to all the other people, honestly, it's not about them. It's about you. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so then one of the things that the quote smart people do, 
uh, is this 10,000 hours of practice. And you guys do talk about the 10,000 hour thing. And I, I use it a lot. What is the 10,000 hour thing? How does it apply to high school students and to people in their careers? Can you sort of walk us through that? Oh, well, yeah. So, so the 10,000 hour rule, you know, that's one of the things that has sort of made its way into the mainstream. A lot of people just know that it's a really high number, but not necessarily exactly what it means. But what the researchers have found is that the one thing that all genius level people, all experts have in common is 10,000 hours of practice. It took them 10,000 hours to get where they are. But it's not just any kind of practice. It's definitely not the kind of practice that we're talking about, you know, those high schoolers who say that they slaved away all night writing a paper. It's deliberate practice, what we in the book call fix-it-focused practice. So this is about really being willing to dig in and get down to the nitty-gritty of what's not going right in your process, right? And so I, I think one of the easier ways to understand is with musicians or athletes, right? You see somebody, you know, a classical violinist rehearsing a piece, they don't just play from start to finish all the way through and then play all the way through again. If they get to a place that's a little rocky, they stop. They play just those two measures over and over until the fingering is just right, whatever it takes. And then, you know, when they go back through, that section is now easy because they've made it automatic in their brains. And the same thing, you know, it's easy to see with like a soccer player, right? You can watch a soccer player in practice, shoot the same corner kick over and over and over again into the goal curving like Beckham style beautifully right and then if that happens in the game you don't see that person and go oh my gosh he's a wizard you just say oh I, well, I saw him practice that and now he can do it every time but the tricky part is that that's not it's not always clear how that translates to everyday things but you know with everything you do you're somewhere on that gradient of getting to expert level and so that doesn't mean that as a high schooler you need to put 10,000 hours into algebra but it just means that that kind of practice is how you're going to make things automatic in your brain the most quickly so that you're always working toward the next level up. And to know that that's how people get good at things. I mean, it's, it's just a hugely liberating idea for a lot of people to know that nobody came out of the womb naturally amazing at soccer or violin or any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, just to even know we're all starting from pretty much the same spot. So... You know, if I'm practicing the right way, I might be progressing more quickly than other people. Yeah, so efficient practice makes sense. All right, there's one of the things that I do is, in fact, not even I'll do, like the military just figured this out. They're looking at the 10,000 repetition rule versus 10,000 hours, sort of saying, mm -hmm. all right, if you do something 10,000 times, if it's a small thing, you can get better at it. And they figured out that if you run a small electrical current over your brain, Mm -hmm. using something called TDCS, they can cut the training time in half for teaching someone to be a drone pilot, which is uh, you have to form new synapses and mm -hmm. you have to myelinate them so you just have better automatic vision processing than you normally would. That's one of the ways of potentially cheating on, <laughs> on this learning thing. Uh, are you guys coming across high school students who you know listen to mind-altering uh, like binaural beats or use electrical things like that to try and like push themselves without resorting to you know other less savory methods of learning like is this is this happening because i have concerns about it but i'm wondering it, it, are they unfounded or are kids doing this now there are kids i mean you know there's a fairly active uh, market in uh, adhd medication yeah i was going to ask about that next actually around yeah. adderall like it, it's well known that kids are doing this and you know, what, what's your take on that? Um, the interesting thing is there was actually a book published called Boys Adrift, 
um, which is basically about, you know, girls are doing very well in school and boys are not really living up to their potential. And the question is why? And he goes through a whole series of reasonings. The, the interesting thing was the NIH uh, approved this study where they gave ADHD medication to kids who have been diagnosed with ADHD. It seems fairly clear from that study that ADHD medication will make anybody focus better. So, you know, is that something that uh, I would want for myself? Is that something I would want for my children? No. Um, I think that's the thing is, is that, you know, you never want to be the first people to be using a technology. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I, I might maybe sometimes be the first person doing a technology, but I'm also a guinea pig, right? I would encourage people, adults or teenagers, but especially teenagers, and until you're 23, the frontal part of your brain that controls you know, your, your integration of the different parts of the brain, your prefrontal cortex, it's not done being formed. So don't use Adderall. Unless, you know, some doctor says there's no other choice for you, in which case I would honestly say you need to try finding some other doctors who are a little bit more enlightened as to the other technologies that work. And even modafinil, which is another performance enhancing drug that I'm I'm actually a big fan of. Don't mess with your brain before it's done gelling. Like it, it's a bad idea. The electrical stuff, I have no idea if that's good or bad when you're a teenager. I don't think anyone does. Yeah. Um, but there's a third way of, of kind of cheating, and that's food. And... and mm-hmm. You and know, exercise. Yeah, keeping yourself basically healthy. I didn't understand that when I was a teenager. In fact, I think I reveled in, you know, French fries and, you know, sort of <laughs> eating Taco Bell. Because, look, I, you know, I ate three tacos for a dollar or whatever the deal was. <laughs> but, like, in addition to being obese and having bad skin, which kind of affect your dating life and all, it messes with your focus. And I have just, like, the Bulletproof site has become really popular. Like, you know, a million people a month, a quarter million people each week I hear one of the podcasts and the number of people who've just people I don't know who've written in and said, Oh my goodness. When I like cleaned up my diet, my ability to pay attention went through the roof. I could not pay attention no matter how much effort I put into it. It just didn't work Mm -hmm. until I figured out that I was doing things every day that were like kryptonite. So if you're one of those people, whether an adult or a teenager who's trying to pay attention and it's not working, like there's a good chance that all that MSG you had in the fast food at lunch, just completely screwed up the test you were taking at two in the afternoon. And you know, biologically, you were not equipped to do that. Even if you knew what you were talking about, even if you dealt with your fear response, like your brain shut down. And yeah. stuff like that is all over the place. And it's such low-hanging fruit. And it's not harmful to do that. Whereas taking Adderall or you know zapping your brain before it's done forming, uh, maybe those aren't really the first, you know, first past <laughs> ways of hacking yourself. <laughs> And there's actually a lot of the research that has been done on things like Adderall is, is that, you know, it really, it affects, it does affect long-term motivation. It affects all sorts of, I mean, there are, it may cause you to focus, but it may also destroy your motivation, which obviously, you know, that you can focus without being able to form long-term goals. Well, one that, what's the point in focusing then? Um, John, John Rady, um, who's awesome and a great, great author, um, he's an MD and I think a PhD, um, but he, um, he wrote a book called Spark. Yeah, it's a great book. It's a great, great book. And it's all basically about the power of exercise to improve cognition, to improve thinking and all of that stuff. And, you know, there are, there's a, you know, a school, there are school districts that are now instituting a zero period. And what they do is they have the kids go running before they <laughs> learn 
to start learning because the yeah. point is, is that, you know, that gets your mind going. It gets the blood flow going. It stimulates BDNF, which is, you know, yeah. stimulates neuro, neuron growth and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, you know, the exercise, diet, you know, sleep, like these are the very, very, very simple things that you can really do to, and it's just such a, it's a, you feel much better regardless, you know? So, so have you tried some of the, the nutritional things like Bulletproof coffee or the the brain octane things that that directly fuel the brain. Either of you guys played with that? We have not tried bulletproof coffee We've yet, <laughs> but it, you would you would not have to work very hard to convince right. us that that there is a that the coffee is a good is idea. The key to all. <laughs> nice. I actually have an IRB approved study of executive right. function. Uh, we took fifty four people and ran them through a test, actually two tests a day, uh, looking at uh, seven or actually nine different measures of cognitive function. And we tested a mass market coffee that you can find on many street corners versus my beans, um, not even counting the brain octane as an additional additive. And there was on seven of nine measures, a marked difference in cognitive function because of the processing of the coffee. And the funny thing is both of them raised most, uh, raised most of these things a little bit, but there's a massive difference from clean coffee versus others. But we know coffee is a smart drug. Mm -hmm. And if you're a high school student, the odds are you're already drinking coffee. Thank you, Starbucks, for making that happen at a younger age. Right? <laughs> um, so like, I would say, play around with the coffee thing. I'm going to get you guys some to give it a try. <laughs> the, the other question, have either of you tried neurofeedback as a way to increase your ability to focus and pay attention? Uh, not particularly. Not. All right. Next time I'm out in New York, I was there last week. Uh, I'm bringing my neurofeedback gear, and we're going to wire you. We'll wire you both up at the same time. But uh, <laughs> it it's pretty neat because those little things that your brain does to tell you, like you know, oh, you're not doing well enough. You know, you're a failure. Those little fear things that jump in when you're focusing. The neurofeedback machine tells you when that's happening, and it tells uh -huh. the brain when it's happening, even if you're not that aware of it. So the brain itself is like, well, that's not very useful. And it starts like readjusting those rules. For me, it's been one of, in fact, it's been the largest technology that's made a difference in my ability to perform and to perform at a sustained high level, uh, cognitively, not physically. So mm -hmm. I, I have great hopes that over time, we'll be moving that into high schools as yeah, a way so to just show kids, you know, instead of just like working really hard or whatever, like you want to work smart, like this computer will show your brain when it's doing things that aren't serving you. Mm -hmm. And then you'll learn to not do that anymore. And then you'll be better <laughs> at what you're doing. Like, it's so yeah. cool. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing that the, the, the sort of other part of this that I would also really say is, you know, facial expressions, you know, facial expressions, you know, they, they are really a fairly good measure of what your internal emotional state is. And so if you start to be cognizant of what are the muscles in your face doing, that's actually quite a good way to get some of that biofeedback as well and recognize Oh, I'm tinting my eyebrows. That means I'm, you know, stressed. I'm anxious, or whatever. And then to be able to deliberately regulate that down and be able to, you know, I mean, it's like put a smile on your face, and, you yeah. know, and that sort of stuff. That's actually true. Yeah. So we're about out of time, but I just have to show you this toy. This <laughs> my little thing right here. Uh huh. And someone just sent it to me, and I'm still figuring out how all of it works. But one of the things it does is it looks at muscle tension on your forehead. And it shows it to you on your computer. So you literally wear it like, you know, Princess Leia or someone right there. Yeah. And I, I just turned it on last night. And I'm like, this is kind of cool. Like, it's going to tell me when I'm scrunching my brow and give me a little red flashing yeah. light. Stop scrunching. So tomorrow I'll have, like, a perfectly smooth forehead. You know, I won't even need, like, oil. <laughs> anyway.
The other way to do that is Botox. Oh, that works right. <laughs> On that lovely note, <laughs> there's a question because we're running out of time that I ask everyone on the show at the end of the show of your entire life, not just, you know, the straight A conspiracy, your book, but from everything you've learned, what are the top three things that are most important for people to know when they want to perform better? Just want to kick more ass. So from your entire life, no one discipline required here. I would say number one, what you believe matters. Yeah. Um, whether that's what you believe about your intelligence, whether you believe the subject is hard, whether you believe that, you know, any of that sort of stuff, your belief actually matters, right? And, you know, we tend to think of beliefs as being sort of, you know, very fuzzy and all that sort of stuff. But there's, you know, just such a huge body of research that has come down from many, 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 many fields that says that belief matters, right? Uh, number two, I would say you can only control you. Right. And so if everything you're doing is why you're just never going to be happy if you put too much stock in your circumstances, what school you got, what, you know, what what cards you're dealt. It's really just always in in terms of progress, comparing yourself to others It's always got to be just where am I today? Where do I want to be? What can I do to me to make that better? And then I guess the pressure is on for, for the, the big third three. one. Woo, performance awesome. anxiety oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, don't be a male cheerleader no 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 no, no. <laughs> um, we need those. no um hmm. do we really need to know um, yeah maybe. it's entertaining um <laughs> i i would say the the biggest thing of all is is that it's okay go for it do you have one Did i have one but oh, i don't you know can we give you four because four is one. good yeah Okay. <laughs> I would say for, for me that people spend their time trying to learn information, right? And what you should really be learning are the big ideas that organize that information, right? So it's understanding the really big concepts like, you know, the scientific method, you know, the ideas and say guns, germs, and seal or anything like that. It's really understanding like what are the patterns that will make sense of that data rather than, and then it becomes easy to put the data into place. That's great. That's a good one. Um, and then I would say that I think the key to happiness is staying curious through your entire life so that you never sort of settle for even even just for learning more about the things that you already know. But I think the, the happiest and most interesting people that I always meet are the people who are, are constantly curious and don't just stop at surface level but want to find out more about all the things they do, whether it's, you know, just meeting someone on the street for one minute and asking them a lot about their job and what they do and what that's like. Or if it means reading books, you know, choosing books in areas that you haven't read before, whatever it is. But I think curiosity is the number one quality. Those are pretty amazing. I, I always, <laughs> no, I always learn things. It, it's great. I, I talk to all these interesting people on the podcast and I always get different answers. I, I kind of thought at the beginning, I'd always hear like the same top 10, but it, it's so yeah. cool to do that. So thank you for sharing those. It's really neat. Yeah. Would you tell our listeners where they can find more about you? We'll include all this on your, uh, on our podcast notes and on the transcript and all that, but just give us your URL or Twitter handles, wherever other things that you want people to know that they can find you on. For sure, yeah. Um, well, our book is available on Amazon, Kobo, Nook, iTunes, Kindle, the whole fleet of e-readers. Um, and we're also now available in Barnes & Noble uh, as of just recently. 
Um, and our website is thestraightaconspiracy.com. And that has links to everywhere that you can get the book. And it also has a free chapter that's available for download, our chapter on uh, critical reading. Uh, and so that gives you kind of a sense of how we get into, you know, through cartoons and jokes and all the other stuff, kind of get into the meat of schoolwork. Because also the, that's the amazing thing. So many kids don't even know how to read. Like there's an yeah. art to reading and they don't know how to do it. So yeah. And, and we're on Facebook. We're on Facebook. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Hunter Mots with two A's, M-A-A-T-S. My Twitter handle is this is Katie O. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Guess Katie O'Brien was taken, huh? Because yeah. there are <laughs> one million Katie O'Brien's in the world, but this is the real one. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thanks again for being on the show. Uh, this was really fun interviewing you guys. And for all of our listeners, if you are in high school, awesome. If you have kids or nieces or nephews or someone, you know, Christmas and all is coming up. And, you know, I don't recommend every book I read. I wish I'd actually had something like this uh, when I was in school. It would have really been a beneficial thing to have. Uh, it's also written in a tone that I think is really appropriate for high school students to read. You know, it doesn't talk down to them, but it's a little bit humorous compared to, you know, the, the more serious literary works that older people like to read. So I think you guys hit the nail on the head. It's well done. And just for listeners, seriously, you can upgrade a kid's life if they understand the stuff in here. So it's worth doing. Thanks again. We'll talk again. Hopefully I'll have you back on the show another six months or so. It'd be great. That'd be awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. 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 Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.